0: This week on New Mexico in Focus, an update from the Navajo Nation, which has turned towards aggressive vaccination to battle COVID.
1: The fight is not with one another. The enemy is COVID-19. In our way of life teaching, that's the monster.
0: Plus, the legislature is set to start its 60-day lawmaking session. We'll preview the action. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. There's a lot of uncertainty in our show this week. As lawmakers head back to the state capitol, COVID protocols will dictate the pace of much of the action. They're also dictating a lot of our lives as New Mexico unveils the next steps in its vaccination plan and tries to avoid costly and embarrassing mistakes in determining just who should get a vaccine. And of course, by the time next week's show comes around, we'll have a new president, The ignominious end to the Trump administration may have lasting impacts for Republicans. Here's the line.
2: Welcome to the New Mexico in Focus podcast. Today is Friday, January 15th, 2021. I am Kevin McDonald, your host and executive producer of New Mexico in Focus. And we want to kick things off with a little bit of a Breaking news for those of you who are keeping a close eye on the legislative session, which gets underway next Tuesday, the 19th. Uh, That would normally be where we would hear the state of the state speech from Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. But we are hearing that uh, that will not be uh, something that will be part of the opening procedures of the legislative session this year. We don't have a lot of details beyond that at this point, but we know that it could be something that gets released to the legislature and to the public uh, the following week. And the reason behind that is just so much unprecedented things that have to happen. As soon as the session starts, both the House and the Senate leadership and members will be hashing out exactly how to run this legislative session, which is uh, unlike any other in that the Roundhouse will be closed to the public. We also found out this week that while the media is allowed in, they will have to have uh, test results that show they do not have COVID in order to be at the roundhouse to cover uh, the legislative session. And So that's going to take up a lot of the oxygen in the first hours of the legislative session. And then, of course, the following day, Wednesday, the 20th, is the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. And so the governor's office is looking to hold on to her take on the state of New Mexico as we head into this session until some of that dust has cleared. So we'll get you more information when we have it. But the legislative session is right where we want to start this week. As you heard in the open there with host Gene Grant, we have our line panel with us this week. We welcome back Merritt Allen, uh, Vox Optima, Dave Mulrion of Everybody Votes. Kathy McGill is back with us. She's with the Black Leadership Council. And Dan McKay, he's a Capitol Bureau reporter for the Albuquerque Journal. So a lot of great voices here to talk about the legislative session. Uh, The budgets, uh, proposed budgets, have been released. The governor this week also released her list of priorities. Some of the big things we know there, not surprisingly, but one of her priorities is legalizing recreational marijuana, which could mean hundreds of million dollars in additional revenues into suffering state coffers. Her budget proposal does have a modest increase, a little over three uh, percent, which is a, a bit of a surprise, but it's a, a good surprise, I suppose. It means that revenue projections for the state coming on the back end of the COVID-19 outbreak not as bad as had been predicted sometime in the past. But uh, also there will be a new push this year. It's kind of been there but it hasn't had the uh, sort of oxygen that it did in years prior. Um, it's been a little quiet the last couple years but a push to take some of the interest earned from the permanent land grant fund and to pump that into early childhood education. So no doubt there will be plenty to talk about and we are going to do our best to bring you as much information as we can on the legislative session here on New Mexico and Focus especially because it's under such unique of circumstances. But for now, let's start by getting a preview with host Gene Grant and our line panel.
0: On Tuesday, for the fourth time in 12 months, lawmakers will come to the state capitol as New Mexico navigates its way through the pandemic. As it has for each of the special sessions, lawmaking will look different as it takes place largely online. Here to talk through what we expect is our line opinion panel. Journalists and professionals who've agreed to read up on this week's headlines and look behind them and offer their thoughts. Joining us are founder and president of Vox Optima Public Relations, that would be Merritt Allen. Longtime ad man and co-founder of Everybody Votes, our friend Dave Mulrion is here. Founder and director of the New Mexico Black Leadership Council, Catherine McGill returns. And back at our virtual table for the first time in a while is Capitol Bureau reporter Dan McKay of the Albuquerque Journal. Dan, I'm going to start with you here because you are the obvious place to start. A two-month session in the middle of a pandemic. Let's talk about this. Lawmakers aren't planning on coming to the Capitol every day, are they? I, I, I want to get some clarity on that first.
3: Yeah, it's going to be an enormous cultural change for the legislators, lobbyists, advocates, everyone. Um uh, they are planning to do the legislature is planning to do much of its work um, online. Uh, we're talking about virtual committee hearings over zoom, um, allowing people to call in uh, that kind of thing. Uh, there is some talk about limiting the floor sessions, which is the uh, the meeting when all the legislators in a chamber are together. Um, uh, to avoid having these, uh, large gatherings all at once. Uh, but yes, it's, it's going to be, a, a an unusual session for sure.
0: And Dan, for you and your peers, I got to imagine it's my understanding that media and staff have testing requirements. How's that going to work? Lawmaker requirement, all that kind of thing. are you're all in the same building. Are you not? How, what's the situation there?
3: Uh, yes, we're going to be, uh, required, uh, media members are required to be tested every, um, well, we have to have a negative test within five days. So, um, we'll probably get tested maybe once a week. Um, uh, we, there will be department of health testing on site that staff members and media can use, um, Uh, the legislators, uh, I don't believe they can be required to take a test, but they are being uh, encouraged, encouraged to take one. Mm. Um, Los Alamos national laboratory, uh, did a lot of study, a lot of statistical modeling on how the session might contribute to disease spread. And one of their key recommendations is to, was to do uh, pretty vigorous testing, um, so that anyone who's positive, even if they aren't feeling sick, uh, that it can be caught as quickly as possible, and their their contacts can be traced and and isolation and quarantine procedures
0: can be started. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that just let the folks know what's happening up there on the nuts and bolts stuff it's important uh kathy mcgill uh both the governor and lawmakers have released their recommended budgets as we know the journal reported on this as well as dan knows a big difference is pay raises for teachers and state workers uh in the legislative budget but not in the governors how do you see this shaking out is something going to come out of it for raises for folks or should they not plan on it for
4: 2021 um i I think that they should probably not plan on it. However, um, it, it seems like everyone is saying that that the revenue is better than expected, right. and so oh, state employees are probably looking for that raise. Um, and and but the reductions in the budgets. Are less than what was anticipated. It was 5%, and I think now, you know, 3.6% down. Um, so, you know, there's room for raises, and I think that state employees are looking for raises because they've had some, uh, had to make lots of pivots working from home, um, doing lots of additional uh, uh, pivots to make sure that they can continue to provide service. Um, I say they deserve it, and we got to look to see if there's a way that we can offer them cost of living adjustments that are commensurate with the mm-hmm. changes and in, in, uh, things that they have to cover, um, just as as individuals.
0: You know, Dale RYAN, as as uh, Kathy's talking there, it's interesting to consider. Uh, David Abbey at the LFC Legislative Finance uh, Committee actually pointed out state workers haven't had a ra- they've had raises in like fewer than half the years over the past dozen or so. Uh, right. So I guess the same question. You know, I don't want to get hung up on raises. we got a lot more to talk about, but right. just a quick thought on that. And I want to pivot to something else with you real quick.
5: I mean, if, as far as I can see, you could never pay teachers and good solid state employees too much. I mean, they, they deserve to be paid well. And I think that we should find the resources to pay them. But I would also think that it's important for us to recognize, I, uh, President-elect Joe Biden told us uh, yesterday that he's not going to worry about the deficit. And so that has big um, implications for the states. And, you know, when you look at what happened, say, during a, a major catastrophe when Franklin Roosevelt was looking to defeat Nazism, he and and his um, treasury secretary, Robert Markenthal, got the deficit spending to about 140% of gross domestic product. We are not quite there. So we do have some latitude, um, you know, that we can do some more deficit spending. And we certainly money is very cheap. I mean, there is no yield and you can do it. You can mm. borrow it. Um, I think that this, the state of New Mexico, they've been on it. I mean, they have gotten all of the, the FEMA grants for extended unemployment. Every time there was an opportunity for them to get federal money, they did not miss a beat. And I think they deserve a lot of credit. And we, I think we know that, look, if the if the window is open and the federal government is getting it out, New Mexico seems to be very good at getting first in line and getting it. And I think that's a great thing.
0: Good point there. Merritt, speaking of budget busting, um, or maybe not, the governor for pandemic re- relief 475 million LFC or lawmakers 250 million for roads 300 to backfill million to backfill unemployment insurance let me talk about pandemic relief first though anything strike you um, it, it's a big number that's a big number for around these parts but we have a lot to recover from what's your sense of that that 425 475 the governor's asking
6: well and I think um, many businesses are also going to be going to the federal pot as well so I mean certainly um, Uh, with Paycheck Protection uh, Plan opening back up, I think that's where many businesses will go to first because that will come first and it will be easiest. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think small businesses are going to be, from a business perspective, businesses are going to line up for the second round of uh, Paycheck Protection Plan loans. And in fact, businesses can even go back to the well a second time. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be that. Then um, uh, there will be uh, state and uh, uh, local funds uh, uh, available there. So um, it, it's, it's a lot. I think it may be considered um, a drop in the bucket compared to what's coming um, from uh, the, fe- the federal relief. Right. I think it's cushion. It would not surprise me if it doesn't take um, a few months for the state fund to be depleted or if it's even not completely depleted because the federal money, the federal money coming in will be so tremendous.
0: Interesting point there. Dan McKinley, swing to education here real quick. Both budgets, uh, meaning the governor and LFC, boost money for extended learning programs. And, of course, there's the Constitutional Amendment, of course, asking to take a bigger bite of the permanent fund for early childhood education. i got to ask, in your sense, is this the year that has a possibility of passing, actually dipping into this? Uh,
3: Yeah, for sure. I would say that this is... um, uh, Probably it's probably the supporters have reason to be optimistic um, beyond any year before um, the permanent fund issue was um, uh, was debated pretty thoroughly in primaries. Um, uh, we have 11 of the 42 members of the state Senate are um, are going to be new to the chamber. Uh, several uh, of the key Senate leaders have uh, lost their primary challenges to more liberal um senators so um uh, the composition of the senate has changed a lot and that is key for this issue because it, it has passed the the house four straight years and the hang-up has been the senate so um I, I would say things are um are looking reasonably good for that um but again it's you know i wouldn't underestimate how many potential snags there are for any bill even if everybody supports it um, good point it could be that senators decide um well, they support tapping the permanent fund, but they don't want to use it for the same purpose the House does. I mean, there are all kinds of potential um, uh, debates that could arise. But I would say that it's um, it's it's it could reach the finish line this year.
0: Hey, Dan, I got a quick question for you. And something just came to mind. that's kind of interesting. Um, chairmanships for committees. Any sense of where that's headed at this point? And, and when will we know? Is there a traditional time? When these things are, are, are let out to the public, I'm, I'm confused how that process works. But do you have a sense of that at this point? Uh,
3: yeah, I don't think that we're going to know uh, the chairpersons for the key Senate committees until um, after the session starts. Okay. Uh, the, the most uh, important first thing that happens is that the Senate is going to choose a new uh, Senate president pro tem. Uh, Mary Kay Papin, the, the longtime president, she lost her re-election uh, bid in, in the primary. Uh, she was uh, among the more moderate or conservative Democrats. Um, the leading uh, candidate to replace her nominated by Democrats is Mimi Stewart. She's an Albuquerque Democrat, um, uh, considered much more liberal than Papin. Um, and assuming Mimi Stewart is confirmed as president, she will have a uh, Tremendous influence over who the committee chair chairs are. Um, uh, several of the more moderate or conservative Democrats uh, were committee chairs who lost in the primary. So um, I think the expectation is that they will be replaced by more liberal members um, and that really could uh, that really could change the political landscape in the Senate, but we probably won't know till that first week.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey, Merritt, real quick—we're down about a minute and a half. I want to get you and Kathy in on on uh, a question each. You're on the redistricting uh, task force. Seems to be set to re- recommend a second, a seven member commission to handle the task every decade. What's the quick take on what we should expect out of this group?
6: Uh, you'll be seeing uh, le- uh, legislation uh, bipartisan, uh, sponsored by Senators Ortiz-Pinto and Senator Moores. Mm-hmm. Uh, And it will call for an independent uh, redistricting commission, seven members, two Democrats, two Republicans, two with no party affiliation whatsoever. It will be chaired by a retired Supreme Court justice. Mm -hmm. And they will be required to have no fewer than 12 public hearings as they draw maps for the U.S. Congress, U.S. uh, state legislature uh, districts and uh, state public education commission. Uh, This is a big deal because we do not have any specific process for redistricting. It's different. Uh, Every 10 years, it's a different process. Too often, lawmakers are the ones who are deciding the districts, not the voters. And so lawmakers choose districts. Voters have no say. And so this brings uh, fairness. It brings uh, transparency. And Um, it ensures complete compliance with the Voting Rights Act, which is really the most important thing we're talking about here, and it protects our underserved communities and populations. So I was really pleased to be on the task force. Um, I also need to mention that uh, line panelist Tom Gary was also on the task force, a number of legislators, a number of uh, tribal and Pueblo representatives, as well as uh, just community and business leaders around the state. Uh, very satisfying work. I'm proud of the recommendations we came for. And you can read the report at NewMexicoFirst.org, but look out for that legislation. And please, um, if you support fairness and transparency in redistricting, call your legislator and tell them to support the establishment of the redistricting commission.
0: Mm-hmm. I wanna to talk to you more about that in detail a little bit later. Kathy, super quick, I just I can't leave you out though. Can, can folks really expect to feel They're part of the democratic process during this Zoom period with our legislature, our citizen legislature. What's your sense of that? Can we really serve folks with with this system?
4: I think so. I think in the midst of adversity or difficulty, as Einstein said, lies opportunity. There's an opportunity for people who may never have traveled to Santa Fe to be a part of a committee hearing on a Zoom call and and listen to what's going on and how we're deliberating um, these policies and procedures. And so I think that it actually opens up a new frontier for people to be able to participate and that it is gonna change the way we do all kinds of things. Uh, we do a lot of training in the New Mexico Black Leadership Council. And so we think the future of training is gonna be online. And so I think this is, uh, there's an opportunity for us to participate. Well sir, so I,
0: I have to agree. I think there's a good opportunity here. We appreciate that for sure. We'll be watching closely both the debates and the impact of COVID-19. Speaking of, we want to take some time this week to check in with Jonathan Nez, president of the Navajo Nation, one of the largest tribes geographically, certainly, and by population. The Navajo have been hit hard by COVID-19 with more than 25,000 positive cases and more than 800 deaths. While continuing curfews and lockdowns, the Navajo Nation is being aggressive with its vaccination efforts. NMIF correspondent Antonio Gonzalez talks with the tribe's top leader about plans for the new year.
1: Nick,
2: next up this week, throughout the pandemic, we have been keeping a close eye on the Navajo Nation, which was hit really hard by COVID 19 in the early days. But of course, like all the rest of us, they are still dealing with the impacts of COVID-19. They have had to lock down the reservation at times, uh, and of course, economic um, devastation from it, you name it. uh, They have been hit especially hard. And we had the opportunity this week to catch back up with Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez. He sat down over Zoom with correspondent Antonia Gonzalez to talk about the ongoing response, as well as how vaccines are being rolled out on the reservation. And as you'll hear, by all accounts, so far so good. So that is really good news. They've been able to get the vaccine at the same time that states have as well. So good news. And uh, Jonathan Nez, the president, has uh, has been vaccinated. You'll hear him talk about some of the reason why, uh, sending a message to the uh, Navajo Nation that this is something that they should be doing and it's a good thing. So here now is correspondent Antonia Gonzalez.
7: President Jonathan Nez, welcome back to New Mexico In Focus.
1: Hey, thank you for having us, Antonio, and all your viewers, good good day to everybody.
7: And uh, President Nez, you joined us back in March of 2020, shortly after COVID-19 hit the Navajo Nation, Mm. drives now in another wave. Um, The Navajo Nation has been recognized nationally for its fight against the virus which has included some really strict measures, um, stay-at-home orders, lockdowns, curfews, mask mandates. How has the tribe with more than 150,000 residents in three states been able to fight the virus as we're seeing the numbers flatten now?
1: Well, first of all, I just uh, wanna say thank you to our Navajo citizens, you know. Uh, they have been uh, very open to the strict uh, protocols that we have put in place. Uh, You know, our nation has been hit hard with uh, the virus and the Navajo people uh, respected and and honored their uh, public health professionals by listening uh, to these recommendations that have come from the Department of Health and Human Services through the CDC and through our Health Command Operations Center, our Indian Health Services, our 638 facilities on the Navajo Nation. So uh, all the recognition should go to our Navajo people for doing that. Of course, we as leaders have uh, listened and we have been surrounded by uh, experts uh, in in public health as well as in uh, science. And when they recommend certain Uh, things for our people you know we put it into policy regulations and laws and that's what uh, I truly believe has saved many many lives here on the Navajo Nation but don't get me wrong over 800 uh, people lost their lives to COVID-19 on the nation and uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to uh, each and every one of them uh, their families for going through these uh, difficult times. But as a nation, we are united in our efforts to push back on COVID 19. And, uh, you know, 80%, I say uh, over 80% of our Navajo people have followed uh, the protocols that have been put in place. Of course, you have some that uh, don't tend to listen. Uh, but I think overall, our culture, our way of life teaching has assisted in uh, uh, respecting one another through through these trying times and uh, really uh, commend the Navajo people for uh, honoring and respecting authority.
7: And can you talk a little bit about the vaccine rollout, um, healthcare, right now you've done uh, frontline workers, vulnerable populations, you yourself, uh, And some other tribal officials have received the vaccine and now elders are getting the vaccine. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. Um, You know, we received. uh, Well, let me go step back a bit. You know, we've been advocating here on the Navajo Nation that we should receive the doses at the same time every state throughout this country receives uh, those uh, vaccines. And uh, I think uh, with the tribal leaders advocacy and Indian health services uh, advocacy, we were able to get the Pfizer vaccines the same day that the rest of the country received their vaccines. And that's commendable. And I, I wanna say thank you to the tribal leaders throughout the country who have uh, advocated uh, to keep our uh, people safe and getting the vaccines. Of course, those are uh, for those that want it. We're not forcing people to get the vaccines. It's voluntary. Uh, Here on the Navajo Nation, uh, Pfizer, we have a relationship with them. Uh, Over 200 uh, residents of the Navajo Nation have uh, been a part of the clinical trials for Pfizer and BioNTech and about 80% of those uh, are Navajo people. And so we know that the efficacy is there uh, and, and uh, first and second doses, 95% pushing back on the virus is, is good uh, statistics. And uh, even our own Navajo professionals or Navajo medical doctors have really uh, advocated Uh, that our Navajo citizens get vaccinated. And so there's been uh, a big interest here on the Navajo Nation to take the vaccine. Of course, you might have known New Year's Eve, uh, myself and other leaders of the nation and IHS leaders took the Pfizer uh, Pfizer, uh, vaccine. Uh, And and the reason we did that was, of course, the first uh, phase 1A were... healthcare professionals and those that are on the front lines in the healthcare field got their uh, vaccines got their shots and of course you know they're, they're well informed of uh, you know the side effects what goes into the vaccines as we started to go to phase uh, 1b you know our elders and our high-risk patients there, has, there was beginning to be a lot of questions, a lot of hesitancy from our elders to, to uh, not take the vaccine. So, uh, you know, as a leader of the Navajo Nation, uh, I thought it was important for us to roll up our sleeves as leaders and to bring some confidence to uh, the shot, the vaccine, and so that our elders could, uh, you know, have some comfort that, you know, at least their leader, their top leader and uh, the lawmakers, IHS leaders as well took the vaccine so that they uh, can uh, be able to uh, be uh, covered, protected from uh, catching this uh, this virus. So overall we received 26,000 uh, doses thus far as of today and out of that 26,000, 18,000 have been put into the arms of our Navajo citizens. So that's about 68% uh, of these doses going into the arms of our our people, which is a very uh, high percentage compared to the rest of the country. And so our goal is whoever wants the vaccine based on the prioritization We want them to be able to get the vaccine if they want. And as we move down, I think we're going to be going into uh, essential workers, government workers, businesses as well. And so this helps us as leaders advocate to the federal government for more doses to come to the Navajo Nation because we can show the track record. I can say now today to the federal government that 68% of the total doses that came to Navajo uh, have been put into the arms uh, of our Navajo citizens.
7: President Nez, um, you had mentioned unity a few minutes ago and You're not only encouraging Navajo citizens to stay vigilant in their fight against COVID-19, but you encourage exercising, eating well, also to avoid any kind of negativity. We're seeing so much division in the U.S. right now. Um, You denounced the violence at the U.S. Capitol. So what's your message of unity to Navajo citizens?
1: Well, the enemy is not our neighbors or our enemies are, is not with one another. The fight is not with one another. The enemy is COVID-19 and in in our way of life teaching. That's the monster. That's the modern day monster that we are supposed to focus on, to push back on, to fight against. And I think if we can all recognize that throughout this country, that the fight isn't with one another, the fight again, fight is against this, Uh, unseen uh, virus that has come into our homes, our communities, in our country, and our tribal nations. I think people will have uh, a different outlook. If uh, if they can uh, take a glimpse through an indigenous lens like us, I think uh, it would be uh, helpful to recognize that our true enemy is uh, COVID 19. And uh, that is the reason why I believe our way of life teaching and our culture uh, utilizing that has really helped us in pushing back on this virus here on the Navajo Nation. Uh, as you know, Antonia, uh, Navajo people since time immemorial, there's stories about the hero twins, monsters coming into. Uh, take over the people and, and demolish and devastate them. And yet there are heroes uh, that were sent to fight off these monsters. And today it's no different. We have modern day monsters. We got COVID-19, we got diabetes, we got uh, heart disease, cardiovascular disease. We have... Um, Domestic violence, uh, sexual violence—you know these modern-day monsters are there, but we do have the weapons to combat uh, these the enemy. And for instance, for COVID nineteen, if you're going into battle, you have to be equipped, or you have to have the armor to fight off your enemy. And one of the pieces of armor is a mask is to wash your hands with soap and water, to social distance, and to stay home. In our tradition, home is the place where sovereignty begins. And then we delegate that to others. For instance, in an election, we delegate our individual sovereignty, our inherent sovereignty to an individual to make decisions on our behalf. And those are our lawmakers and the president. And that's how we view things through our lens as uh, indigenous peoples uh, here in this country.
7: Well, thank you for sharing the resilience of the Navajo Nation and uh, indigenous people across the country. Uh, President Jonathan Nez of the Navajo Nation, thank you for joining us again on New Mexico PBS. Thank
1: you for having us, Antonia. God bless everyone.
2: Not done with the Nez family just yet, but you'll hear more about that later on in the show. Right now, we want to pick up on the COVID-19 vaccine front. Uh, They are starting to roll in, and uh, New Mexico uh, is well over 100,000 vaccinations delivered already, and those numbers continue to grow, and there was uh, a lot of fast-turning news on this this week. For one, we learned that the UNM Pit, the basketball arena, will be a vaccination site, a mass vaccination site here in Albuquerque starting next week. And they can do thousands a day, depending on whether or not we have the vaccines to administer. And uh, in addition, the state, uh, you've probably heard by now, seen the commercials or the social media posts, but there is a website the state set up where you can register for the vaccine get all your information in there uh, indicate what your career and your profession is so they can help put you into the right phase Um, and uh, so we just wanted to get an update on all of that and there were a lot of updates coming this week we had secretary designate for the department of health tracy collins who provided an update as we are now moving into phase 1b of vaccine distributions that are older people especially with um chronic conditions, as well as younger folks with some of those conditions as well. So you're going to hear from Dr. Collins, as well as the uh, hospital administrators and officials from our big three hospitals, that's the UNMH Hospital, Presbyterian, and Loveless, talking about how the vaccine rollout is going for them. So we'll get you caught up here, then we'll be back to talk with the line as well.
8: As of today, we've had more than 170,000 doses delivered to New Mexico, and we've administered 78,143 doses. Within the last seven days, we've administered more than 30,000 doses, and this, again, is based on 81% of providers reporting. So the good news is New Mexico has one of the highest administration rates in the country. Within the last three weeks, we've had nearly 400,000 New Mexicans to register for their vaccine. We encourage all of you to register. It is the way that you can get yourself in the queue and then we can follow up with an appointment so that you can get your vaccine. You can modify your profiles at any time. And again, you will receive notification when vaccine is available at a nearby location. So I wanted to walk you through the phases for distributing the vaccine. So as you know, phase 1A was the phase we were, current, we were in just before we opened up 1B. And 1A, just to reiterate, hospital personnel and personnel in congregate settings. Um, and so we've now opened up 1B. And I want you to understand that we're starting with, in sequential order, persons 75 years of age or older, and then persons 16 or older with at least one chronic condition and then persons who are frontline essential workers followed by vulnerable populations. And I really want to encourage persons who are in one a or 75 years of age or older to make sure you're registered so that we can move you to the front of the line and get your vaccine. Now, when we talk about sequential, What we're wanting to do is to reach as many as we can who are 75 or older, and then move to those who are 16 or older with at least one chronic condition. Those conditions can include cancer, chronic kidney disease, immunocompromised, asthma, obesity, or hypertension. What I just read there is not an exhaustive list, but it gives you an example of what we mean by a chronic condition. Please keep in mind that a substantial number of New Mexicans will meet eligibility based on that one group, being 16 or older with one chronic condition. We also have frontline essential workers who are key to keeping us functional. And that includes K through 12 educators or those who work in higher education who cannot work remotely and grocery store workers. And again, we have a list that we've made available that includes frontline essential workers. As far as vulnerable populations, we're talking about shelters, about our youth, about detention centers, correctional facilities. These are vulnerable populations because these are people most likely to be infected who don't have the option of distancing themselves. And so they're more at risk for COVID and they're more at risk for dying. So we really have to be very efficient, and strategic in getting them vaccinated as doses are available. After 1B, which we're looking at covering the winter through the spring, we'll move to 1C. And then after 1C, we'll move to phase two, which is a general population.
3: Dr. Collins, and I apologize if you've covered this to to any extent, Um, do you sort of expect um, a steady stream of vaccination doses? Do you expect that to increase as production increases and how far out um, do you know how much you're going to get? Thank you.
8: Yes, thank you, Matt. So we do expect currently um, a steady stream, but we're looking each day. And as we have a new administration coming in the door, we're hoping that that supply increases, but we will know more later. Um, And so really the idea is to vaccinate as many people as we can. And to reevaluate on an ongoing basis the doses we have and how many more people we can vaccinate.
9: The progress that New Mexico has made regarding vaccinations is truly remarkable. Uh, we're standing out in this country in a very positive way. Uh, we're excited to uh, support the State uh, Department of uh, Health as they move through the next phase of vaccinations. Uh, We're encouraged by the number of healthcare workers who have stepped forward to receive the vaccine. To date, Presbyterian has administered over 11,000 doses. But the hope of the vaccine must be balanced with the reality that COVID-19 is still spreading in our community. Our state and local percent of positive COVID tests remains too high, uh, as are hospitalizations and daily case counts too high. We must remain vigilant about protecting ourselves and those we love. While vaccine efforts do continue, we encourage New Mexicans to continue practicing COVID safe behaviors, such as avoiding large gatherings and wearing masks properly over our noses and mouths uh, when we're out in public anytime.
10: Here at Loveless, um, as well as the rest of our health systems across the state, we're supporting the state in these efforts. And as already been mentioned, um, our state is doing really well. We're really moving in the right direction to be able to try and vaccinate as many people as possible as quickly as possible. We have so far have done about 65% of our employees and want to continue with concentration on those high-risk groups And now that we're in phase 1B.
11: So far, UNM has given uh, in excess of 10,000 doses. Um, uh, throughout our health system. Uh, we're still focused on uh, healthcare workers who have direct patient interactions uh, on a regular basis. Uh, administrative staff or those who are uh, working from home uh, are now being encouraged to utilize the Department of Health website. Uh, we're not uh, intending to uh, do anything other than uh, Shift to utilizing the website for the rest of our employees?
10: We have seen some increased interest in people who originally said, you know, I'm not sure about taking the vaccine and had some reluctance. And now that I think they have seen their colleagues take the vaccine without problems, we've had additional people sign up for their first doses so now that the state has allowed us to move to 1b we will be expanding what we're able to do and so we're actively making plans to be able to move into our next level or next tier.
9: COVID count numbers may be coming down but this is our high season Uh, so overall hospitalization numbers are still quite high. Um, For the second part with regards to morale it was immediate boost in morale. Uh, People finally had hope uh, that there was light at the end of the tunnel, that uh, perhaps we could uh, become more normal by the end of this year. And again, you know,
10: I, I think the reduction in stress for, for people to feel that they have a measure of protection, of course, they're still wearing PPE and doing all the appropriate things, but it's just an additional measure that gave them security. So I think it has helped um, the numbers coming down ha- has been helpful. I think people have seen how the community and state has pulled together and tried to make a huge effort to reduce those numbers. And so, you know, we, we thank everyone for doing that because that has been exceptionally helpful as well.
11: Yeah, I, I can't overemphasize the, uh, the joy and relief that our, our workforce has had. Uh, with the advent of the vaccination. Um, and I think also starting to see that we're on uh, what appears to be a downslope in terms of hospitalizations and the number of COVID cases occurring in our community. Um, those things combined have really boosted morale significantly and given our frontline uh, workers uh, the, the added, uh, added juice to keep going forward. Uh, these are tough times, and our healthcare workforce has been working hard.
2: All right, so that's some of the latest on the vaccine rollout here in New Mexico. Of course, next week we will have new federal leadership on the vaccine rollout. President elect Biden has already indicated he wants to release as many vaccines as possible, as fast as possible. And so there'll be a lot of additions to all of that coming up very soon. We will continue to stay on top of that. But before we leave the vaccine issue behind, we want to check back in with the line opinion panel for their thoughts and observations about the rollout to date.
0: With New Mexico taking the first step into Phase 1B of vaccinations, and again, that means people over age 75... In those 16 and older, if they have pre-existing conditions, it seems we're starting to turn the corner, or at least we can see the corner from here. That means something. You just heard about the difference that makes for first-line medical workers who have been battling this day in and day out since last March. And Kathy McGill, what kind of difference have you seen it make among people you know? And I want to know specifically, trust in the African-American community that the vaccine is safe and effective. What's the feedback you're getting?
4: Um, you know the jury's still out in the community about people who are willing to take the vaccine mm-hmm. because of the historical distrust of vaccines that come from the government and and not understanding perhaps why it's necessary right now for us to uh, be the f- first doctors but there are a lot of people and I think the the opinions are varied in the community. I signed up for to register to get a vaccine today and while wow, I'm uh, my number hasn't come up yet, when it does come up, I'm going to take it. But I understand how people want more information, and I think that we need to do a better job of getting information about the efficacy of it and sort of, you know, combating the disinformation about, you know, anecdotal things that people hear about people who've had bad reactions to the vaccine. So I'm hoping that we're able to do more of an education campaign, but but there's varied responses in the black community and in all communities about whether or not we can really trust this because of all the, the misinformation that's out there.
0: Right. Hey Merritt, you know, it's interesting, this idea about equitable distribution, uh, people are gonna be people. And there were reports last week that event codes were being unfairly shared with family members and friends and people were sharing stories about cutting in line and all this other stuff going. I mean, people are just going to be people. Your sense of the rollout and how we can get our arms around this and get everybody vaccinated, given that people are going to do what they're going to do. What, what's your sense on that?
12: I, you know,
6: I, I don't know. There, there's only there, there's only so much vaccine. I don't see um, e- I don't see too many ways to game the system. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you go in with a name and a birth date. Um, uh, I've registered my entire family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have, um, you know, an eighty-seven-year-old and two fifty-somethings. I mean, my mom is pretty good with makeup, but I'm pretty sure um, if I try and go go in as her, um, people are going to
0: figure it out. Interesting. <laughs> I'm with you. So, I'm with you. They'll figure it out. They'll figure it yeah, out. Yeah,
6: I just I I, I I don't think it is I just don't think there there's enough cheating going on to be too worried about it. Will there be some Well the state yes. says
0: they're on top of it now. The state says they've yeah. they they're on to don't it. So I
6: think that's enough of a risk a risk to be concerned about. I think I think the main thing is is to make sure that uh, the distribution plan is such that we make sure that everyone is able to get the second dose
0: mm-hmm. with
6: the stocks we have. And just that, that level of planning and logistics, that's, that's my primary concern rather than, uh, my, I'm, I'm more concerned about the distribution um, planning end rather than the consumer end and um, who might be sketchy about it.
0: Gotcha. That makes sense. Hey Dave, interesting announcement the other day that the UNM announced that the pit will be available for vaccinations, for mass vaccinations. Shouldn't leave that word out. We're talking 1,600 people a day starting next Tuesday, then more than 3,000 a day three weeks later. I guess my question is this, phase 1B, especially the underlying conditions. We're talking about a huge group of people here, upwards of a half a million in some reports uh, here in New Mexico. Uh, So that, does that change things on our vaccination rollout? Do we have to lean into this?
5: Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, let's go back one little thing. So when um, after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, Franklin Roosevelt stood up in front of the country and said, we are really caught unawares here and we need to build 50,000 airplanes to combat what's coming. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every expert said that's not possible. We can't do it. Yet here we are. I think we need leadership. I think we're going to get that leadership with the new administration coming. The American people will do very well if they're told what to do, if we have good leadership. And I think we're starting to see we're just about to hit critical mass. We're going to get a huge amount of vaccinations happening. You know, people have questions and people are worried. Yet, you know, I had a mother who lived through the polio epidemic. She could not wait to get us those vaccinations every year. And I think it's important to recognize that's where we need to go. But we need leadership at the state Mm -hmm. and at the federal level to get there. And I think we're going to get it.
0: Interesting stuff there. Dan McDan? A holiday uptick. We've heard about this, the Christmas season, of course. Uh, We're now just getting into the window where we should see some impact. Uh, Any concerns? Uh,
3: Yeah, there was pretty sharp growth uh, early this year. Um, uh, After about two weeks after Christmas, there was pretty sharp growth. And we have seen uh, an uptick in cases. Uh, Over the last few days, there's been uh, kind of a leveling off. So it could be that uh, that we've seen the extent of the bump, but it's it's hard to know. We're also not two weeks out, uh, or we're just approaching two weeks from from New Year's Eve. So um, so we might start to see a bump from that also. Um, but it, it it looks like for the most part we're we're pretty stable, but at a high case level, um, you know we we're not anywhere near the uh, the state's reopening goals. Um, so cases are going to have to come down substantially before we start to to get to that.
0: This week, I forgot the county, but somebody went green this week, if I'm not mistaken, first time in you know since this uh, new system. Kathy McGill, you know, we also have the first case of the more contagious strain out of the UK has landed in New Mexico. Literally, somebody that uh, traveled over there. D- does this help? You know, redouble the effort, so to speak. Does does this scary new strain make people say, all right? The mask thing's more important than ever now, distance, all that kind of thing. Or is it just another data point for people?
4: No, I think people are, you know, have a heightened concern about a new strain, a new variant of the virus. And, you know, I think the people that I'm talking to are uh, redoubling their efforts to uh, stay uh, shelter in place if they can and to uh, follow the protocols. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, there's a heightened awareness and and it's getting closer, I think, as as the virus continues to spread. I know that I have people in my close circle who have been infected with the virus and uh, people that I know who have lost their battle. Yep. And so it makes it very personally um, uh something that that i'm looking at and i think a lot of
0: people are in that same situation i i hear that i'm still mourning one of the great friends of albuquerque D.Z. chavez passed away from covid uh, about a month and a half ago it's i'm still working my way through that one that's for sure Um, let's talk schools for a minute merit phase 1b also includes frontline workers unable to work remotely and teachers are part of that group as well do you think teachers and students will be able to get back into the classroom obviously before the end of the year
6: There are certain um, Mm -hmm. teachers and educational employees who are already in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So that that has to uh, happen. A family member of mine um, uh, works with special needs children who really have to be in a classroom environment. So um, given the difficulty of keep maintaining social distancing protocols with that specific uh, student population, it's absolutely vital. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether um, that will get uh, teachers and students back in the classroom quickly. It certainly won't happen, I don't think, this school year, Uh, just given the overall conservative uh, uh, mindset of this state. I mean, let's remember New Mexico is one of the most, uh, has among uh, the strictest uh, requirements in in the nation and has not let up and has uh, uh, never really reopened since March. So I, I think it highly unlikely that uh, students will be back be back in the classroom in the uh, 20, uh, 2021
0: school year. Dan, let me ask you to pick up on that too or as well. Um, do I have it right that the governor is leaving these choices to individual school districts and the folks that run them? Or, or is this going to be sort of an edict statewide as, as things go along? Uh,
3: I, I think at this point it's uh, county by county and it depends okay. on what... Uh, Statistical uh, information there is on the the spread and the prevalence of the virus. Um, the governor has indicated that she wants to look more closely at uh, getting schools reopened this semester. Um, but again, her, her you know the power is divided a bit between school districts and uh, and the the public education department. Um, I do think, uh, you know, one of the key things for reopening schools is just going to be the spread of the virus. And we're kind of have this this race between uh, getting uh, the vaccine out to people, uh, hopefully before this new, uh, more transmissible strain of the virus starts starts to circulate.
0: I think you're right. It's all going to be 10 depending on what the numbers show at that time. As Merritt said, maybe 2021 might not happen. We're out of time. We'll take a quick break to reset, then be back to talk about what's ahead for Republicans and conservatives after the stunning final weeks of the Trump presidency.
2: All right, we're going to kick it right back to the line now. It has, of course, been a wild and woolly week and a half, really, for our nation and for New Mexico after the siege uh, on the U.S. Capitol last week, the objections to certifying the Electoral College vote. uh, Tensions are just at an all-time high. The politics, the division, it is all there and on full display. Of course, there's been lots of back and forth with the president being banned from almost all social media outlets because of violent rhetoric. Uh, And at the same time, We know that Otero County Commissioner Coy Griffin with the Cowboys for Trump group here in New Mexico also banned from some of those social media platforms because of his politically and violent rhetoric. Um, And that hasn't stopped some of it, though. We had over the past weekend, a Republican Party chairman for New Mexico, Steve Pierce, issue a tweet that said President Trump is the president forever, which of course is unconstitutional. Uh, That was later deleted, uh, but it was out there for quite a while. Lots of folks saw it. Lots of folks tweeted it. You can find it if you look for it. And Coy Griffin has not let up really in other ways of getting his message out, even indicating late this week that he will be there for the inauguration next week and he will be armed uh, for that. He's taken his guns, as he put it. So we really wanted to dive into response here in New Mexico to the president's Uh, violent rhetoric and the divisiveness it continues to sow uh, as we head into this inauguration and the months of what we hope will be healing and a desire on all sides to come together on some common ground. Clearly, we've got a lot of work to do there. And there is responsibility to go around where the media uh, are part of that as well. But definitely folks like Steve Pierce, the Republican Party. uh, In addition, you'll hear the line folks talk about a newly minted Second Congressional District uh, Representative Yvette Harrell, who objected to that Electoral College vote certification last week, and she also voted against the new article of impeachment against President Trump this week. Um, these are bold steps, statements for uh, someone who uh, was in a very competitive race during the election, um, but again, there are a lot of people calling on her. She's also... Um, had comments about her endorsement in that campaign and in that race from Coy Griffin, who we mentioned earlier. So spotlights on these folks, people are paying attention to what they say and what they do to try to bring folks together. And we wanna talk about that a little bit on the line. So let's do that right now.
0: After urging supporters to march on the Capitol and at times using violent language to do so, President Trump has been impeached a second time. And while this was primarily a Democratic effort, 10 Republicans broke ranks to vote to impeach as well. Here at home, New Mexico's top Republicans are sticking with Trump. Over the weekend, Steve Pierce tweeted that Trump would be president, quote, forever. That is, of course, wrong and, most importantly, unconstitutional. Mr. Pierce deleted that tweet later, but in an interview with the Santa Fe New Mexican, he refused to admit the president might have played a role in the Capitol riot Merritt, got to ask you first, what's the sense in the Republican Party about Mr. Pierce's unflinching stance? And we're going to get to Yvette Harold in a second. But I want to talk about Mr. Pierce first. What's your sense of where he's been on this?
6: Well, um, it's not just Steve Pierce's, uh, but one Republican in a, a party of millions. The Republican Party um, is split right now. There are Trump Republicans and there's the mainstream Republican Party. Um, the president uh, fomented an insurrection. He implemented the insurrection based on a lie. It was a two-month lie he perpetuated about the results of an election. Um, It was a planned, agitprop Soviet-style misinformation campaign. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was for no reason but uh, to try and overturn a constitutional process, which is, of course, um, our four-year quadrant... quadrennial presidential election. Um, it's deadly serious. Uh, he's an unserious man who uh, has threatened our democracy. So uh, the Republican Party seems to, in some ways, think that even after last week, as of January 7th, they can keep going about their business. The RNC chairwoman has been um, elected to, on the national level, another term. And the, uh, uh, that the Trump movements is eroding, but uh, still there. And th- this this can't continue. The The Republicans who voted to object to electoral college votes need to acknowledge publicly the seriousness and wrongness of their actions. And the Republican party must repudiate Trumpism immediately and move on with a fresh, fresh slate for 2022. Mm-hmm. And importantly, the entire GOP organization has to rebuild voter confidence and trust in our elections with proactive and thoughtful engagement and outreach because thousands of American voters were convinced their votes were stolen thanks to this false misinformation campaign. And the, it's on the GOP to earn back their trust.
0: Good point there. Um, Mr. Mulrion, I mentioned Yvette Harrell, our CD2 representative. And yes. Merrick just mentioned that everyone who stood up and opposed this and the Pennsylvania count and all that should be some in some way held responsible, or we just know who they are. What's your sense of where, uh, you know, how Yvette Harrell's situation is going to play for either independents, Republicans? How, do you, how are you reading the tea leaves from this?
5: I mean, uh, you know, there's an old saying, a week is a year in politics. And I think that You know, when we start looking at what's going to happen to Congresswoman Harold down this road, we don't know. Yet, I would also say that um, one of the mistakes, and I I believe it's a mistake, is is that, you know, there's no sense in fighting the last election. And, you know, I think the Congresswoman is on the wrong side of this issue, yet Democrats should use that energy to look for a candidate that they can be for. And, you know, this idea that we're gonna remove her, that we're gonna, everything she's doing is wrong and all of that there's some validity to what they're talking about. The Democrats also have to make a choice and they have to say, you know, let's move forward. Let's, we've got a new administration. You know, one of the things that I keep thinking about is that 2020 was 1968 and that it is a very big change, you know, and we have, we have like, you know, a huge number of new Republican women in Congress and we have a new, new a huge never, a larger number of gay representatives in Congress. We are clearly leaving the old America we're heading to. IT'S A NEW AMERICA, AND I THINK WE SHOULD GET THERE. WE SHOULD CONCENTRATE ON THE FUTURE. BE OPTIMISTIC, AND LET'S LOOK
0: FORWARD. Mm-hmm. DAN MCKAY, INTERESTINGLY, I'M GOING TO BRING IT BACK TO HOME HERE, WHAT'S THE REPUBLICAN BENCH LOOK LIKE HERE IN NEW MEXICO? WE JUST TALKED ABOUT STEVE Pierce AND Yvette Harrell, uh FOR LEADERSHIP, FOR HIGH-PROFILE OFFICES, what, WHAT'S GOING ON WITH REPUBLICANS RIGHT NOW? Uh, THERE ARE SOME um, YOUNGER
3: REPUBLICAN WOMEN WHO ARE LEGISLATORS WHO um, are pretty active at the roundhouse who might be um, uh, potential candidates. I, I don't know whether they're, um, you know, what their interest is in uh, running for things, but we recently saw um, Rebecca Dow is taking a leadership position within the, uh, the House uh, Republican caucus. Uh, she's been very active uh, during floor debates. Um, Kelly Fajardo from Valencia County um, was one of the leading uh, legislators who worked on an anti-harassment policy a few years ago um, and raised questions about whether lobbyists were being taken advantage of. Um, you know it's 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 hard to see. a lot of the um, the the kind of Albuquerque area Republicans have uh, been wiped out of the legislature. So a, a lot of the bench in terms of elected officials now, you know they're from more rural areas. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Interesting point there. Kathy McGill, I got a little bit of a a switch up here on you, but it's interesting to me. Uh, Republican Senate candidate Mark Ronchetti is back on the air, a KRQE 13 doing weather. just sort of popped up out of nowhere um, as their chief meteorologist. The station has taken some heat on Facebook. I've seen a lot of people having a little bit of an issue. Should the station have said something, you know, to let folks know why they're bringing him back? Should they have said something to let
4: know? People know why they're making an employment decision. I don't think so. I don't think they have a right to make that decision. And well, truly,
0: but is this not? I mean, he outperformed Donald Trump here. I mean, he's he you know, spent millions of dollars to elevate his name and his face. He's not like he's just a regular schmo off the street.
4: Yeah, uh, you know, I was I was shocked at the amount of support that he received, and at first uh, downplayed it until I drove up to Rio Rancho and I saw all the signs. Um, and he did very well. And they probably made a good business decision, whether or not it loses them viewers and whether or not they care about that remains to be seen. Mm-hmm.
0: Merit, you wanna take on that one? I, th- I think it's kind of interesting, the Mark Ronchetti thing.
6: Uh, Surprised me, not at all,
0: uh-huh.
6: uh, not at all. And I'm sure there's probably something in his contract uh, uh, with regard to that, um, that, that was uh, uh, not a surprise. Um, I also think he's he's a uh, really good a uh, really good on-air personality. Um, his voice is great. His pattern is great. Um, uh, you know, this isn't the last we're going to see of Mark Ran- Um uh, As a candidate, it, do you mean? Right. Um, his whole campaign, you know, showed the splits in the New Mexico GOP, not necessarily over President Trump, just over who controls New Mexico Republicans. Um, uh, you know, the New Mexico uh, GOP establishment, um, the official NMGOP was really focused on uh, Yvette Harrell's race. They were not focused on the Senate. Mm-hmm. And he showed that he did not need the state party uh, to uh, be a highly successful candidate. So we're going we're to see more
0: Mark. Interesting points. That's going to have to do it for the line panel this week. I'm back in a moment with a few final thoughts as we head into the legislative session and the Biden presidency.
2: All right. A couple of housekeeping items. Again, want to remind you, if you're tuning in on Tuesday on Facebook or YouTube or the NMPBS website for the State of the State speech, you will be disappointed. It will not be there. We will get a State of the State address from the governor. Uh, It will be pre-recorded because of COVID-19 restrictions. We don't know exactly when, but looking a little bit like the beginning of not next week, but the week after. So somewhere around the 25th or the 26th we we'll have more information for you on that next week. Also, want to let you know uh, earlier we played uh, parts of the live updates that we had this week from uh, Secretary Desnitz for the Department of Health, Tracy Collins, and those hospital administrators. The full uh, press conferences, Zoom conferences, if you want to call them that, is up on our Facebook page. Just search for NM in Focus. In addition, on Friday, Gene Grant, our host. Did a really great Facebook Live with some really great information for folks uh, on an unfortunate topic, which is a recent uptick in the number of car break-ins at trailheads along the Sandias, but also even including over by the Bosque, and uh, and uh, that's just an unfortunate thing. We understand why it happens when the economy is suffering like it does, uh, and there are efforts to try to crack down on all of this, some really useful information about how you can get involved in those efforts, or if you see something like that or experience it yourself firsthand, what you can do. Simple answer, 242-COPS. Put that phone number in your phone, uh, and that's the best way to report. Uh, The worst way to do it is to call 311, because those don't always get directed to police. So, that's also up on our Facebook Live. We did that earlier today on Friday, and we encourage you to check that out. You can follow us all the time on New Mexico In Focus on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Uh, what am I missing? Facebook, of course. I mentioned that already. So lots of ways you can get us. Before we leave you today, though, I have a bonus for you. Uh, we talked to Navajo Nation President uh, Jonathan Nez earlier about COVID-19 and the vaccines. But we also took an opportunity to talk to his his wife, First Lady of the Navajo Nation. Uh, She is very deeply involved in missing and murdered indigenous women, and she is on a task force here in New Mexico looking into that issue. It's a newly formed task force that Governor Michelle Luan Grisham put together. Uh, She's also doing similar work in Arizona and for the Navajo Nation, and we wanted to uh, find out that task force here in New Mexico just recently issued their recommendations on how to better address this problem. Reporting is a big issue. Compliance of reporting and just ability of law enforcement to gather this information when there are these situations of domestic violence or even disappearance of Native women. It's an important topic uh, and it's become even more high profile over the last year as the realization is out there that uh, our Native population and our Native women are uh, just un- equally susceptible to, to this kind of violence. And so it's an important topic for us here in New Mexico and Focus, too. So we wanted to catch up with her and want to bring that to you now. We may include it in a future episode of New Mexico and Focus uh, on air. But wanted to bring it to you here now, in part because the First Lady is going to be mentioning how they are holding a human trafficking seminar next week. And so we wanted to get you a little more information about that. So here now back to Antonia Gonzalez, our correspondent and the host of National Native News on Kiwanek Broadcasting, and uh, as well as First Lady Nez.
7: Joining us now is the First Lady of the Navajo Nation. Thank you so much for joining us here on New Mexico In Focus. Um, Please introduce yourself. Yes, A. My name is
12: Bethel i the First Lady of the Navajo Nation. that's how I relate to my Navajo relatives.
7: All right, thank you so much. And I wanted to share or have you share a little bit about the very important um, serious work of missing and murdered indigenous people. It is a really tough topic for the Navajo Nation, um, families and indigenous people across the United States to talk about, but it's also a very important issue. Can you share some of your work you're doing on task forces, both in New Mexico and in Arizona?
12: Well, uh, for New Mexico, I've been working with the task force uh, was appointed um, October of last year and we just ended our uh, task force duties for the first year um, in November of 2020. So it went 2019 to 2020. And um, for the Navajo Nation, from the Office of the First Lady and Second Lady, a lot of our efforts have uh, been revolving around uh, just educating the public on um, MMIW, and then as well as uh, human trafficking, because there is a connection there definitely but it's not one and the same. And then for the Arizona um, uh, human, uh, and the other one that we've been reaching out to is uh, the Arizona Governor's uh, Human Trafficking, and, uh, yeah, human Trafficking um, Advisory Council, and then New Mexico Human Trafficking Task Force. So it's been a lot of um, efforts of uh, partnering with them to educate the public on some of these items.
7: And the task force here in New Mexico recently released a report of the work um, and recommendations for the governor and also New Mexico state lawmakers. What is the top priority that the task force found that needs to be done to address missing and murdered indigenous people in New Mexico?
12: It would be data collection. Um, You know, there's... a You're talking about um, numerous um, tribes and pueblos in New Mexico and every one of those tribes and pueblos, we have our own uh, tribal justice systems. Everybody has their own laws. And so as sovereign nations, it's really uh, something that needs to be addressed almost internally. But then, of course, we want to keep support of uh, the state of New Mexico. So it would be a partnership across uh, jurisdictions and also with the federal Uh, institutions as well.
7: And how does law enforcement looking at jurisdictions play? Because there are a number of tribes in New Mexico, the Navajo Nation, Apache tribes, and the Pueblo communities, all sovereign nations, like you said, with different um, laws, language, culture, history, Um, And then working not only just locally on the state and national level. So how is working with law enforcement? Why is that key in addressing this issue?
2: You
12: know, a lot of it starts with reporting. And the second step in that is the actual uh, classifications. And so when you're looking at different databases, they don't all collect the same types of information. And the other important factor here is accessibility. Who gets access to these uh, data collection centers and how are they utilized? Um, That's really been uh, the top two findings, I think, uh, from the report itself. So when we're talking about collaborations and partnering, uh, we can't force another jurisdiction or, you know, across that, even from border towns, like for Napa Nation, we wouldn't be able to like strong any border town or any county or any state uh, court system or PD to uh, give us information. So it really has to be done in a collaborative effort. And that's been, I think that's always been um, the, the, the greatest barrier maybe.
7: And part of the task force, not only looking at these issues is a lack of resources. What kind of resources are needed Um, to look, study, uh, create a database and just keep this movement of um, MMIW and other uh, missing persons going?
12: In terms of database, I think uh, for the tribes ourselves, you know, it's uh, because, so for, for, for example, some of our tribal members they have memberships or they're either married or have children in other tribal communities. So when you have two tribal communities who don't share the same type of the same database, it's really hard to um, even connect in those ways. So maybe it's, that's where that shared, um, those shared ag- agreements to have access to each other's uh, reporting databases. That's very important. But the other one that we see firsthand, I guess on tribal communities is just a reluctance to even report certain things to law enforcement. And then beyond that would just be, um, there's a great uh, need for education. I think of the public on how um, the criminal justice system operates on each tribal system. And then of course you have to look at um, how things operate off the nation. If things occur, if there's an incident that occurs off the nation, you're looking at either working with a city, a county, or state um, a, a justice system. And then of course when the federal justice system gets involved, that's a whole different layer of items that so it's not, so every case is not always going to be the same. And I think that's where there's a lot of confusion that sets in place and it's where a lot of distrust happens. Uh, but there needs to be definitely an a great amount of education to the public
7: on that. And what are, or what is the importance of having families involved in the process? What kind of things are you hearing from families? And we're not just talking about, um, you know, just older women, the Navajo Nation, very unfortunately lost Ashlyn Mike, which was, um, you know, internationally known and the community came together to remember her and it was such a hard time on not only the Navajo Nation, but other tribes across the country um, relating to these different types of cases. So what are you hearing from families? For
12: families, it's just a lot of support services, wraparound services, comprehensive services. That's really what's needed um, during the time when an incident occurs. And then uh, there's also need for services for um, returning survivors. So families do need support when, um, a member after family returns home and that's usually, um, some, sometimes that's left out of the conversations, but we definitely heard from some families who, who are struggling with that right now.
7: And can you share some information about some of the work the Navajo Nation in particular is doing on missing and murdered Indigenous people?
12: There's a lot of um, education and prevention efforts. You see a lot more on that end. Um, in the future, we would like to see more in terms of, uh, I guess, reporting. But of course, in order for some for anybody to report anything, they need to be uh, they need to know what it is uh, that they're looking for and how some of these things occur. And so, and I think that's something. Maybe that's the reason why we don't have many people reporting because they don't know what it is that they're really seeing and witnessing happening in their own communities.
7: And what is your, What is some of the work you're gonna be doing this year as we've entered a new year? What is some of the work that um, you would like to continue when it comes to missing and murdered indigenous people?
12: Well, next week from the office of the first lady and second lady, we are uh, hosting a virtual event Just on the topic of human trafficking and just to really give it's a it's almost like a human trafficking 101 uh, virtual event just to give the very basic information um, to community members about what it is and how to kind of spot you know some of the things that you can look for within either your own family your nieces nephews or within your own communities when you go out to different places or even into border towns for doing shopping or anything like that. You know, some of the things, these things happen around us but we don't necessarily know what is going on because we don't, we don't know what we're supposed to be looking for.
7: And is there any resource that people should reach out to or look to if they're in need of assistance?
12: We'll be posting resource links on our new website for the Office of the First Lady and Second Lady. Um, So that's where a lot of families will be. um, We'll definitely be um, making that known during the virtual event. We'll have a website and then a forthcoming app, so they'll always have access to those on there.
7: Well, First Lady, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this very important and hard issue that many families and tribes across the country, including the Navajo Nation, are working on.
12: Thank you.
2: That'll do it for this week for New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition. We thank you, as always, for joining us. And as always, we want to leave you with some final thoughts from host Gene Grant, reflecting again really on what we saw play out in the violent uprising at the U.S. Capitol last week and how we cannot afford to underestimate the importance of that. Uh, And he paints a very vivid picture of imagine if that would happen in our roundhouse here in New Mexico and how jarring that would be, we know that uh, there is scuttle, there is talk, there are rumors of some, not necessarily violent protests, but protests planned at state capitals on Sunday, on inauguration day, really anytime. We know security is ramped up at the roundhouse. There is fencing going up around the roundhouse. Really a sad sight for all of us to behold, and uh, one of the first times anybody can remember us having to cordon off our state capitol like that. So Gene has some reflections on that and most importantly, some hopeful thoughts about how we can change the divisive way we seem to be going here in our country and here in New Mexico. So we'll want to leave you with that and let you know again, we'll be back with a whole bunch more next week for you, including the start of the 2021 legislative weekend or legislative session. We hope you have a fabulous weekend. Most importantly, stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you again soon.
0: For those of a certain vintage, the impeachment of Donald Trump this week marks the third presidency in which the House has started down that road, Nixon, Clinton, and now Trump. And technically that's four, four impeachments with Donald Trump's second. Twice, I mean, think about that. We can argue the merits of the first impeachment, but there's no getting around the need for the second. 10 Republicans agreed, and there are reports many more Republicans would have voted to impeach were they not worried about being killed. Killed by supporters of the mob that stormed our nation's capital. Think about that too. Members of our Congress afraid for their lives over a vote. I'd also ask you to imagine this. What if a mob rampaged through our roundhouse? A mob breaking windows and doors, running across the floor with zip ties, battling with state police. Why? It would be over a lie. Because that's what this whole mess is all about. A lie. The accusation that the election was stolen The basis for this whole thing is a lie. No lie, no insurrection. Think about that too.